0: Hello, and welcome back to the Ethics of Literature. Uh, So this one's been a bit of a long time coming. Uh, According to my records, it's been over a month since I've uploaded a lecture, um, which I don't find too terribly surprising, and hopefully you won't either. I warned you last time it might very well be a while since I'm moving, and the semester ended, and basically I had no time to think about anything besides that. Um, I wish I could say that I've spent the entire time, like, reading Derrida and working on, you know, this lecture and thinking about things. And to some degree, I have. Like, um, I was definitely sort of gearing up to to record this lecture the week after the last lecture I recorded, um, though that didn't happen. Um, But in that time, I've somehow gone through Derrida's strange institution called Literature Interview, like at least two times at this point, so it hasn't all been for naught, but it definitely wasn't my primary focus. Um and we gotta talk about this one just in general. Um I kind of am fascinated by Derrida. Like I can't believe that somehow it has been this long in my podcast career, um and I've never gotten around to actually like talking about any of his work or directly confronting any of his writings. Um, I have a kind of weird relationship with Derrida and so far as I kind of don't agree with him as far as his conclusions and his methodology is concerned. Uh, but I take his point and, I don't know, I suspect I'm kind of in that same antagonistic position that Kant was with Hume, where Kant, like, respected living crap out of Hume's philosophy and was determined to beat it somehow. Um I stand in fairly similar position with Derrida. Like, he irks me a lot. Um, But it's real hard for me to overturn his sort of philosophical project, um, his whole deconstructive outlook, the arguments that he has to make about literature, about writing in general, about texts and our interpretation of them. Um, And I definitely did want to confront him in this discussion. Um, for a couple of reasons. Like, as much as this interview really isn't on par with a lot of the other writings on the ethics of literature that we've talked about in this lecture series so far, like, we aren't seeing a fully developed theory of literature here. It really is very sort of spotty. Uh, but at the same time, he does sort of present his his overarching theory. Like we do in fact get a what is literature for attitude as much as he hedges about it. Um, and we do in fact get a kind of overall perspective on what Derrida expects literature to be and what he recognizes in the literary works that he perceives. And um, But as much as I want to talk about that, I kind of want to talk about his whole project more, because as much as Derrida does have his own opinions about what we have been calling the ethics of literature and what Derrida would be probably extremely offended to find his name attached to whatsoever, um, I kind of want to talk about what Derrida's overall project does to literature as much or more as I want to talk about what Derrida specifically has to say about literature. Um, because Derrida is one of the most influential philosophers or literary critics or whatever you want to call him, like, of the last 50 to 60 years. Um, Like, there's a lot of disagreement about who is or who is not an important philosopher in philosophical circles these days. Um, That's just the case. It's partially because of that whole analytic continental divide. It's partially because you know, it's too recent and therefore the, the truly heavy hitters haven't been necessarily identified just yet. Um, I've said before, and I'll say it again, that I consider like the two biggest, most influential philosophers of the 1970s and 80s to be Foucault and Derrida, um, both of whom could definitely be relevant to this discussion. Um, But Derrida is especially relevant because in addition to his philosophical program getting a whole lot of traction, much like Foucault's, Derrida kind of gets, he kind of has a more popular misinterpretation that gets even more press and even more popularity. Derrida's methodology is a carefully calibrated thing. It is extremely cautious in the way that it is conducted. And most Derridians, most people following this philosophical program, aren't nearly as careful about what they do, where they apply this deconstructive methodology, all of that stuff. And I want to talk about that. Um, In fact, that's kind of where I want to start here. Um, Like, again, as much as I do want to talk about the interview, this strange institution called literature, as much as I want to look at his direct ideas, again, the goal primarily of this lecture is I want to confront his whole perspective and what that's going to do to literature in the 80s, 90s, and beyond. Um, But this comes with some caveats. Uh, First of all, it has been a long time since I've systematically studied Derrida. Um, It was probably 20. 14, 2015, when I sat down, got, like, all the Derrida books that I could get my hands on, read on grammatology cover to cover, um, like, did a deep dive study of his writings on differols and, and all, and, like, read, reread limited ink for, like, the third or fourth time at that point. Um, and it's been a while since I've read any of those texts. Like, it's probably been since 2014 since I've cracked any of them open, besides a, a brief skimming in preparation for this series. Um, I also don't have access to them right now. Um, I am trying to get this lecture out because it has been a freaking month, and I feel incredibly guilty about not being able to do anything online in all of that time. Um, But the fact of the matter is, I'm literally sitting in an office surrounded by boxes, barely able to move. My bookshelf is almost completely bare. All of my Derrida books are packed up, and I think most of them are actually in another state at this point, because that's just the way this move is working out. Um, But I didn't want to miss the opportunity. I did, in fact, want to talk about Derrida, and I felt fairly comfortable being able to sort of reach back into my memory and, and talk about this stuff, because, again, as much as it's been a long time since I've actually read Derrida... This is stuff I'm thinking about pretty frequently, and sort of I've been waging a one-man war against the avatar of Derrida my thoughts have produced for probably the better part of the last decade. So with that in mind, the first thing that I definitely want to stress about Derrida and his whole deconstructive project is, again, there's this major distinction between what he is doing in his work And the way that the popular quasi-academic, quasi-literary theory or critical perspective and apparatus tends to understand him as doing. So we're talking about deconstruction here. Like, this is the key word, this is the key methodological construct, this is the perspective that Derrida has largely been taken to embody and represent. Um, And if you have not heard, deconstruction is effectively the taking of a text and unmaking it turning it into something else, Uh, recognizing that it could be interpreted to mean any variety of other things besides whatever the author had intended, or perhaps in cahoots with what the author intended, or who cares what the author intended. It's complicated. Um, And deconstruction is not limited to Derrida either. We should emphasize the whole business of deconstruction is definitely a project that a lot of thinkers have been working on, Um, Linguists, semioticians, philosophers like Derrida and beyond. Um, The business of deconstruction is also kind of ill-defined. We use the term deconstruction or deconstructive to refer to a large variety of sort of literary critical tasks. And we would even emphasize that many texts today are essentially deconstructing themselves or are, in fact, texts deconstructing other texts. Um, this could be as simple and straightforward as the fact that, like, the Marvel Cinematic Universe almost always has a metatextual layer to it, like, in addition to The Avengers being a movie about a bunch of superheroes who get together and fight the bad guy, it is also a movie that is about, hey, isn't it awesome that all of these movies came together into this one canon, and here is the movie where all of the characters are hanging out. Um... It could be something like Star Wars in its most recent incarnation, commenting on the state status of Star Wars fandom. Um, something like Into the Spider-Verse has often been sort of described as being deconstructive of what, you know, a Spider-Man movie or a Spider-Man mythology might involve. Um, and this is all to some degree true, but it is, again, deconstruction in its sort of broadest terms. When we say deconstruction, we usually mean that we are talking about a movie or a book or a text or whatever that is commenting on either itself or its role in a genre or legacy of other texts, or for that matter, that it is taking apart other texts that have come before. So, yes, the MCU is deconstructing itself. Yes, Into the Spider-Verse is deconstructing Spider-Man. Yes, Chinatown deconstructs noir movies and Blazing Saddles deconstructs the Western. Like, all of these statements are to some degree true. But when we're talking about deconstruction specifically in the context of Derrida, we're talking about something fairly different here. Derrida is very much emphasizing in his whole philosophical project that when a text is presented to us, and it is, in the most of these cases, a text, Derrida emphasizes the priority of speech over writing, which is sort of following the the linguists like Saussure, but also kind of turning this on its head and emphasizing how, as he puts it, iterable writing is is as it produces texts. What Derrida is emphasizing is that anytime that you write shit down, it doesn't even matter what that might be. It could be a grocery list, it could be a poem, it could be a novel, it could be a play, it could be a philosophical treatise, it could be anything. Once you have written it down, it is summarily divorced from its context. This is something that we've seen in Sartre, so this should not come as a huge surprise to us, and Derrida refers to Sartre's What is Literature multiple times in this interview, so it's clearly on his mind. Just as Sartre was emphasizing the historical context of these writings and stressing that, like, we cannot appreciate a novel written in, you know, 1930 here in 1950, because it is too far removed in time and the original circumstances surrounding it have changed so radically that some of the things that we used to think important are now different, whatever. Derrida is going a step further than this and emphasizing that from the instant that the text is divorced from its author, from the instant that it is written down, it is now iterable. It can be changed. It can be recontextualized. And indeed, the meaning of that text, insofar as such a, quote, meaning exists, must be dependent as much on its context as the text itself. And this might sound a little weird for a guy who is famously quoted as saying there is only the text, but what Derrida is very much emphasizing is that meaning is dependent on context, and therefore the text is infinitely interpretable as these things go. Now, again, it's more complicated than this. I'm definitely oversimplifying Derrida's perspective, but what we need to understand at its very outset is that Derrida is stressing that you can take a text And you can manipulate it. You can quote it out of context. You can quote it out of order or just present it in a larger framing device and radically change the meaning of that text from the meaning that is usually attributed to it, what Derrida would usually call the stable or dominant meaning. What we're saying, essentially, is that interpretation is everything The text itself provides very little in the way of a mechanism to guide in its own interpretation. The text has no limits. We reading the text, responding to the text, understanding and interpreting the text, are in the position of being able to change the text or understand the text however we want. There is no defined, definite meaning in a text, inherent in the words on the page. That meaning only exists when we read it and impose our meaning onto it. The signature is empty until it is countersigned in some sense. Now this is kind of the thesis at play in Derrida's Limited Inc. ABC, which is kind of like the main text that most readers of Derrida are familiar with. This is the one that most literary critics, especially Derridian literary critics, are happy to bring up at a moment's notice. And it's also kind of the perfect example of what Derrida is doing, because the entirety of the text of Limited Inc. ABC is a response to an essay by John Searle, which was itself a response to Derrida's own signature event context, a different essay, and the bulk of Limited Inc. ABC radically, quote, misinterprets John Searle's original meaning, even though it quotes almost the entire essay over the course of the text. So Derrida is not only proving Searle wrong, i.e. arguing that Searle's insistence that some language is, in fact, fixed and some meanings are, in fact, meaningful and therefore universal in some sense. It's complicated. I'm definitely, like, radically oversimplifying both Searle and Derrida here. Um, What Derrida is, quote, proving is that Searle is way off base. And that Derrida can use Searle's own writing to basically flip Searle's own intended meaning on its head, insofar as Derrida is willing to admit that a meaning can be intended at all. So, what do we do with this? What I want to emphasize right here at the outset is that when Derrida does this, when he performs the act of deconstruction, he rarely ever says any of the stuff that I just described what he does instead is, like, actually do it right there on the page. Almost all of Derrida's work, with some very few exceptions, are not some kind of original philosophical treatise where he literally just starts, like, explicating his system in grand detail, but rather it is almost always taking a work of somebody else's Um, In Of Grammatology, it's an essay on writing by Rousseau in limited ink. It's Searle's text. Here in the Acts of Literature uh, anthology, he does the same thing to uh, Ulysses and to um, multiple other writers that we'll be talking about in a moment, like Paul Ceylon. It is very, very rare for anyone to catch Derrida doing philosophy in the same sense that, like, Descartes is doing philosophy, or in the sense that Kant is doing philosophy, building a system from the ground up. Derrida is always responding to someone, always taking a different text, a different great work of philosophy, or one that he specifically values, as his jumping off point. And in most of his work, he will then, quote, distort, but Derrida would probably prefer to call it interpret that text to conform to his own understanding of literature and use that as a way of explaining what Derrida has to say about literature, philosophy, language, etc. So, I doubt Rousseau has anything to say about iterability, about supplementarity, about difference in his essay on writing from the 18th century, but Derrida twists his meaning, I say again very carefully, um, because Derrida wants to use Rousseau to make the point that he himself wants to make. For Derrida, there is no such thing as a single objective or concrete meaning located in the text, and therefore all of these texts are subject to this deconstruction and can be used to sort of derive multiple, even multiple conflicting and contradictory interpretations and meanings. So as much as I keep saying that Derrida twists or distorts or manipulates or re- like misinterprets or whatever, and as much as I'm probably going to continue to use that language throughout, Derrida sees all interpretation as the same. There is no justification to prefer one interpretation over another. There is no reason why you would take Rousseau's stable interpretation over a more unstable one, i.e. one that is widely agreed upon by the academic world there is no reason to prefer that interpretation over one that you come up with on your own in, like, your own room all by yourself. This is what Derrida is doing, and he is demonstrating without explaining. So, what I am effectively doing here by trying to describe Derrida's methodology and ascribing this to this, you know, wide understanding of interpretation, this is all in many ways a total misinterpretation of Derrida, which I suspect would actually amuse him at the end of the day. But it is the stable misinterpretation of Derrida, and that's what I want to emphasize. Um, Where Derrida is extremely careful about his deconstructive efforts, where every single one of his texts is kind of simultaneously deconstructing this other person's work of philosophy while also promulgating Derrida's own interpretation and his own philosophical system, if we may be able to call it that, most Derridians, most of his followers, his scholarly, you know, the people who study Derrida and who follow his methodology are not nearly as careful, are not nearly as rigorous, are not nearly as methodological. There are dozens of texts by Derrida where he is doing exactly what I'm describing, deconstructing somebody else's work, using that to uh, promulgate an interpretation that he is especially fond of, presenting another writer's work as being sort of in line with and communicating his own ideas about language, literature, etc. But, It is only in interviews like this one that we actually see Derrida doing summary, doing something approximating a philosophical system, largely because Derrida doesn't think that that's a thing. And he thinks that if he had, in fact, written a tax that was just like all Derrida and no Rousseau, no Husserl, no James Joyce he would immediately be subject to the same interpretive matrix, the same series of reinterpretations, the same deconstructive efforts that he is doing himself. Derrida is not interested in a text that is not engaged in its own deconstruction. Um, He doesn't want to write it. Um, As much as he emphasizes here, Like, his primary philosophical and his primary literary literary influences here are the same kind of writers who are engaged in this sort of self-revelation, but also self-deconstruction. It is Sartre and his quasi-literary, but quasi-autobiographical writings. It is Nietzsche, who is constantly, like, speaking in a dozen different autobiographical and simultaneously non-autobiographical voices. This is what interests Derrida about the business of philosophy and the business of literature. This is the kind of work he wants to produce. He wants to take Nietzsche's sort of self-commentary and ratchet it up to 11. That's what his body of work is largely aiming to do. But, and this is what I really want to emphasize, contemporary Derridians tend to see Derrida and his deconstructive method as basically a silver bullet solution to the questions of interpretation i.e. they are quick to dismiss all interpretation, to say that they are all equal, stable and unstable alike, Um, that there therefore is no truth in a text, no meaning in a text, because it is subject to this kind of deconstruction, and because a Derridian deconstruction of a text is to be held on par with the author's own statements about that text, as well as any scholarly consensus about that text, All of this is equal, therefore all of it is equally meaningless, therefore we can dismiss a great deal of this hand-wringing over meaning, because at the end of the day, for most Iridians there is no meaning in this text. It is empty. It is not something that you can find. This is not something that Derrida ever states. And I'm not sure if Derrida would even agree to this. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't, in fact. Derrida's methodology, like I said, is way more careful than this. At no point is he willing to say there is no meaning. He is going to come very close to that line on multiple occasions. He's going to emphasize the arbitrariness of signs, and therefore the sort of inherent meaninglessness of words, except insofar as we have imposed meaning upon them. But that is not to say that there is no meaning. Meaning for Derrida is constantly a question in the text, at least meaning in the sort of colloquial sense. There is always interpretation. Texts are always engaging with both writer and reader in some respect. This is constant, as far as I understand Derrida. But it doesn't change the fact that that meaning is, at the end of the day, subject to the communication of writer and reader yes, the reader's interpretation is primary over whatever some kind of secondary or supposed objective, supposed stable interpretation or stable uh, reading of the text might be. Um, That's a given for Derrida, but that is not to say that that meaning is somehow undercut by this, that we are enabled, therefore, to go around dismissing all meaning. Um, Derrida doesn't make those kinds of blanket statements. It's not in his philosophical project. It's not a question he feels like he can answer, I suppose. It's unclear exactly why Derrida avoids these direct confrontations with the big universal abstractions. Part of it is because I'm sure his own thinking is much more nuanced and careful than this. But this is what I want to stress. When the academic world kind of gets a hold of Derridian philosophy, when they latch onto this whole interpretation as meaning, therefore no meaning sort of philosophical project, they're pretty quick to run with it. And there are a lot of Derridian scholars out there who are willing to largely dismiss any interpretation whatsoever because it is in some way futile, according to this Derridean philosophy, something which Derrida wouldn't agree with. For Derrida, yes, the metaphysics, the functioning of language might operate on those same rules that these Derridians are describing, but that does not excuse or permit some kind of Wild West dismissal or, you know, shot-from-the-hip misinterpretation, which somebody then uses Derrida to, like, totally defend or or sort of weakly uh, hold up as their own view. Derrida is not a relativist, in short, at least not in any of the readings that I've encountered him. And again, this is a really difficult thinker to wrap your brain around, and I am probably doing some pretty decent injustices here. But what I want to emphasize is that for Derrida, that does not mean that you just get to do whatever you want with your readings and, you know, who cares. Derrida is far more meticulous than that. He is far more careful. He would probably dismiss many Derridians as being haphazard and brash rather than sort of admiring them as followers of his, of his whole movement. Um, and this is significant for a number of reasons. Um, We've had a lot of discussion in this whole Ethics of Literature project about meaning, about what kind of meaning an author can communicate to us about how that meaning can be communicated to us heck coming off of Ayn Rand like Rand's whole argument here was that at the end of the day we are supposed to communicate certain fundamental truths about the world that every work of literature is at the end of the day some kind of deep meaningful philosophical argument some kind of ethical treatise um, and anyone who says otherwise is lying to themselves And this is definitely on par with what Tolstoy said about brotherhood, what Gassette suggests about, you know, sort of reinterpreting the the Dada and abstract movements in order to understand like what sort of dehumanizing messages they're trying to communicate. Um, We've had a lot of questions about meaning, and we have up until this point largely assumed that meaning was possible that an author's intention was to some degree successfully communicated to the reader and that therefore the author was ethically culpable for whatever they wrote down. If we're going to accept the sort of broad strokes shoot from the he- Doridian deconstruction that I'm describing here, that puts a lot of question into that entire discussion. Like, as much as I'm sure that I have listeners who have been, you know, diligently or perhaps not so diligently listening to me rant for like 10 lectures at this point about, you know, literature and the ethics of literature and meaning, and probably there's been quite a few times that some of my listeners have been tempted to say, who cares? It's all a matter of opinion. How do you know what this author means anyway? To some degree, Derrida is in agreement with you but we need to be careful about that. Derrida is not saying that there is no ethical ground for literature. On the contrary, Derrida is describing some interesting ethical motivations for literature to exist, and while he doesn't go so far as to list any imperatives, because for him that would end the purpose of literature altogether, and by its, by consequence, end literature altogether, um, he is at the end of the day saying that, you know, Meaning can exist. Interpretation is a part of this ethical complex. It may be more the matter of the reader and the critic who the ethical onus is sitting on, but it does not mean that a text does not have ethical merit or weight. Derrida is not going to say that. It's complicated how we might derive ethical meaning and weight from a text in this situation, but nonetheless, it's something that Derrida certainly considers important. Politically significant, sociologically significant, significant from the perspective of, like, a feminist or, uh, by contrast, phallocentric take, as he describes it here. There are clearly, there's clearly a lot on the line for literature here, and Derrida doesn't downplay that as much as we might be tempted to dismiss the entire ethics of literature conversation from a sort of Dorinian perspective and say, what does it matter? All interpretation is sort of a crapshoot and we're all just going to interpret it however we want. Derrida's not going to agree to that sort of flippancy, or at least I don't see any evidence that he would do that, even if his system seems to justify it. And this is what I want to emphasize. People use Derrida to do some lazy crap in short. Derrida is a sledgehammer in the hands of many, many thinkers, while Derrida's own work is scalpel-like in its precision. Just reading through this uh, interview, you can see multiple times where Derrida quibbles over the meaning of a single word or where he will spend a long period of time discussing, like, why the word he used once in this one text, which apparently he has committed to memory, is somehow not relevant to this discussion as much as the interviewer might think it is. And it is pretty clear, just reading through this interview, that the interviewer is just desperately trying to keep up with Derrida. Like, the interviewer will ask a question, and Derrida will seemingly not even answer that question, but answer some kind of space question happening in his own brain that might be relevant or might not be irrelevant, and then the interviewer is like, can we talk about that thing that you said, like, ten minutes ago? And Derrida's like, sure. And he just delivers another, like, space response. Um, I want to recognize, on the one hand, yeah, this is super confusing and we might very well call bullshit here like, come on, Derrida, you're using a lot of academic language, but what are you really saying? And that might very well be a warranted interpretation of what's going on here. Um, But at the same time, we do see these glimpses of meaning. Derrida does, in fact, emphasize there is weight behind these writings. There is merit, there is worth, and that these things have consequences we don't get the big blanket statements that we might want from Derrida. We don't get the easy sixth grade language that would help us to understand what exactly his perspective actually is. But at the end of the day, it's pretty obvious Derrida has some idea of the ethical and moral weight of the works that he's talking about, of what the purpose behind literature is or is supposed to be, or what that might at least include. So using Derrida as a sledgehammer, just knocking down other people's arguments like, oh, well, that's just your opinion, that's really poor use of Derrida. That is a wild misconstrual of what Derrida's project actually is. That is, to be blunt, a pernicious and irresponsible use of Derridean methodology. Um, And I say that again because I've seen a lot of it, Like, I have seen a ton of writers just sort of casually dismiss out of hand what does it matter what I said, what does it matter what I wrote, or lots of critics who are very willing to just death of the author, any author that they come across, um, which admittedly is its own sort of distinct philosophical perspective separate from what Derrida is doing, but also intimately connected with what Derrida is doing. This is the mess that we find ourselves in when we confront Derrida. Let's just put it like that. This whole giant postmodern cocktail of deconstruction, death of the author, uh, reader response interpretation, new criticism, however you want to describe it, all the elements that that are sort of simmering here, this is what we need to confront. Because at the end of the day, and this is going to be a huge deal in John Gardner in the coming weeks, at the end of the day, literature still moves people fiction still affects people. People are going to respond to books, to movies, to television, and they are going to change their viewpoints. Not so dramatically as to justify, oh, we should ban X video game or X movie because it's turning our kids violent, but on some sort of quiet and subtle level, yes, our opinions, our ideals, our emotions, our perspectives are being nudged, every time we see a movie, every time we read a book, every time we do anything that involves literature. And I want to emphasize, Derrida would probably agree with that statement. Derrida would almost certainly say, yes, we are affected by these things. By countersigning, by participating in the process of a text, by reading, we are, in fact, engaged in this very complicated, literary textual relationship where everyone comes away a little bit changed even if the writer even if the text is in fact dead and set in stone change has still occurred because the way that we interpret it the way that we understand it has changed our perspective on it has changed and in some cases irrevocably so it is not acceptable for us to just dismiss it altogether to say there is no point in asking what the author's meaning is because the author has no meaning. There is no justification in Derrida to say all interpretations are equally valid and what is actually in the text does not matter. These things are way too far. And again, I want to stress this. Part of this is because I have just been a radical opponent of relativism as long as i have been scholarly enough to understand what relativism is effectively um so i could very well be radically misinterpreting derrida here sorry if it turns out that he is a hardcore relativist oops i guess that's you know a thing um but nonetheless what i want to stress here is i don't see evidence for derrida being a intellectual relativist in understanding all texts as being essentially meaningless I've heard many people interpret him that way. I've seen many critical readings of of various texts that seem to present him that way. Um, But that's not what I've seen him do when I, in fact, sit down and try and understand this thinker. It is something way more subtle and way more complicated. But, you might very well ask, okay, so that's not what Derrida believes. Why shouldn't I believe it? Why shouldn't you be a cultural, intellectual relativist? Why do I, Professor Kozlowski, insist on ascribing meaning to texts? Why can't it just be a matter of opinion? Why must this be some kind of blend of subjectivity and objectivity and not purely subjective? Why is it that there is something significant, something universal in a movie, a video game, a book, and not just the reader's going to come away with with whatever they feel like coming away with? And I admit, that's an interesting question. Like, not as interesting as the ones that Derrida's engaged with, in my opinion, but one that we do need to confront here. All of the stuff that we've been talking about from day one of this lecture series has assumed some kind of stable meaning to everything that we read, every movie we watch, every video game we play. And that's a fairly big assumption. Like when I came out of the gate and said, you know, the first question that I am going to ask in this lecture series, you know, is speaking ethical? And I said, obviously, yes, and gave, you know, tons of precedents and tons of arguments and so on and so forth. At the end of the day, the major question that I was avoiding was the one that Derrida might very well be asking here, or that we might be very well asking in the context of Derrida. Is there a meaning? Is it in any way objective? Is there anything that everyone is taking away from a text? Is there some kind of stability underlying a text that causes us to be able to judge it on some sort of objective terms? And my answer has always been yes. Like, it's not as straightforward as, you know, subjectivity or objectivity. It's not as much as, like, there is a capital T truth and there is one capital M meaning behind every text that we read. It's more complicated than that. And again, I've wrestled with this one a lot, and on both sides for that matter. Um, When I was in seminary, for example, like, I was in the company of a lot of pretty hardcore Baptists, Um, who were very much a fan of the the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy and this very strict literal historical hermeneutic for interpreting the Bible, Um, if it isn't obvious, Christians have a fairly vested interest in maintaining something akin to the objectivity of interpretation because otherwise anyone can take the Bible and make it mean whatever they want to mean and therefore the ethics that the Bible prescribes can be completely subject. Um, So if I am like, I want to have sex, but I also want to be a Christian, so I'm just going to ignore the parts of the Bible that talk about how it's not okay to have sex because they are, you know, products of their history or because I just don't agree with them or I'm going to interpret them differently. In my mind, that's dangerous. But for many Baptists, for many Christians, that's unthinkable. And that's a very important distinction here. I do not think that all texts are always interpretable. I do not think that there is one true interpretation, whether the authors or the scholarly consensus or whatever. I think it's more complicated than that. But I do think that texts corral meaning. Like, that's the word I like to use, and I know that makes me out to be, like, super American. But it's also a really evocative verb as these things go. Um, like, if you're not familiar with it, a corral is, is where, like, cows are kept um, in American ranching. Um, so to corral as verb is, like, to put cows into the pen. And it's important, it's a really good verb in this case, largely because, I don't know if you've noticed, but cows are mobile. Like, they, they wander, they they don't sit in just one place and just, you know, stay there forever. Um, so what I'm suggesting is that there is, like Derrida says, play. In meaning, there is room for words to have different meanings or to change in meaning or to, you know, possibly even have multiple meanings in certain contexts. But importantly, that's within the boundaries of the corral, of the fence. So, yes a text may have a lot of potential meaning. There may be a lot of different ways that we can interpret it. We may be able to see how there is room for interpretation in the way that a text describes things. But that does not mean that there is infinite room. Um, to use one of my favorite arguments from biblical hermeneutics, a, a book uh, called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals by, I think it's James Webb. It's unfortunately another book that I've got packed. I um, his hermeneutic basically boils down to, so the Bible is in fact trying to communicate like some forward-thinking ideas. So the Bible does in fact allow for slavery, for example, um, even as that, as it gradually starts to discourage it more and more over the course of the text, and therefore it would be irresponsible for us as 20th century thinkers to think that the Bible wants us to continue to have slaves. Um, There is no reason to interpret the Bible's condoning of slavery in, say, the ancient Israelite world as being evidence of condoning slavery in 19th century America. Um, That's a huge reach. That is more eisegesis than exegesis. What Webb says is that there is room for interpretation here. Um, it is unlikely that the Bible wants us to see this as a pro-slavery text, that none of, especially like in books like Paul's Philemon, it's really hard to justify the Bible as a pro-slavery text. But it is possible, it is within that corral, it is within the boundaries of what this text allows for. But at the same time, Webb argues There may be room for interpretation as far as slavery is concerned, as far as the role of women in the church or in society is concerned, but there is not room for the acceptability of homosexuality within the context of the church. There are too many places where it is explicitly forbidden. There is no evidence throughout the text that God is, you know, changing the way or the perception of homosexuality throughout history. Um, It is clearly something that was apparent at the time, and yet even and yet even in that time, God did not seem interested in condoning it. Webb says there is room for interpretation on some things, there is not room for interpretation on other things, or the interpretation does not extend that far in some cases. You can say, all right, the Bible allows for certain different sexual practices, but you cannot say the Bible condones adultery, in short. Um, There are boundaries, there are fences. There may be tons of room for meaning in a certain space, but that does not mean that you are free to interpret it, you know, all of the text however you want to. And the reason why I stand on this kind of thinking, this idea of corralling meaning rather than, like, imposing meaning, is that on the one hand, obviously, texts are subject to interpretation. Like, this to me is a no-brainer. The Baptist who I went to school with, who insisted that there was one literary historical meaning of the text, that God had one idea in mind when he communicated to us, to me is absurd. Like, not even just wrong, but just that's not how language works, Um, If God is smart enough to create human beings, presumably God is smart enough to realize that language is subject to interpretation, and that by incorporating a whole bunch of literary devices and metaphors and imagery in the text of the Bible, he is not expecting us to come away with one and sole right interpretation. Um, He is expecting some wiggle room, and no amount of clarification will ever stop that wiggle room from existing. If anything, it's just going to complicate the wiggle room. So, to me, some amount of wiggle room, some amount of interpretation, some amount of arbitrariness to the sign, some amount of interpretation is necessary to every relationship with a text. But that doesn't mean that I am a hardcore relativist either. Obviously, just as, you know, a text is not subject to one, like, obvious or objective meaning we must also contend with the fact that the texts have boundaries, that people derive the same meaning apparently coincidentally, if in fact it is subject to no universal meaning or no sense of meaning whatsoever. Um, We might be able to interpret a text in a wide variety of different ways, but that those different ways are bounded by the the rules that the text shows us. We might be able to interpret the Iliad as being pro-war, we might be able to interpret the Iliad as being anti-war. What we can't do is interpret the Iliad in such a way that Hector lives. That interpretation is forbidden by the text. There are too many hard indications that that is not the case. So that is one of the fences that we find ourselves on. Hector dies. That is a fact. That is something that the text is not willing to debate with us. It is essential to understanding the stuff that we can interpret. The author is laying some walls down in short. Now I'm not sure how much of that Derrida would agree with. I'm not sure whether Derrida would agree that you can like draw a hard line at Hector must die in the Iliad, or whether or not some interpretation is possible where Hector lives but also Derrida isn't interested in the facts. Like Derrida explicitly says here what interests him about literature is virtually the same thing that interests him about philosophy. It is the way that language is being used here. It is the way that it is opening up new fields of meaning, the way that it is engaged in its own deconstruction. Derrida explicitly says storytelling isn't what draws him to this. That's not what interests him. The writers that he's interested in kind of exemplify this. He loves Joyce. He loves Kafka. He loves Ceylon. Writers who the plot and the story are kind of secondary to the literary games that they are playing, the, you know, large le- or levels of reference in something like Beckett or, or Joyce. That's what, you know, Derrida is specifically interested in. But the reason why Derrida, like, when he's asked, so why didn't you do literature? Derrida's answer is, because I'm not interested in the storytelling. Like, I'm way oversimplifying on that one. But essentially, that's what he answers. That's why I'm a philosopher, not a literary writer. Yes, my philosophy will always be literary. If I were to do literature, it would always be philosoph- philosophical. But at the end of the day, literature has a story most of the time, and I'm not interested in that. That's something we're definitely going to be coming back to. Um, But that, for me, is kind of the key idea to deriving this tension between the ability to interpret a text and the necessity to interpret it in certain ways. Again, the facts of the story are taken as given. We are not invited to question them, unless we are. Like, yes, there are definitely texts that leave certain questions open, Um, Did Arthur Dimmesdale inscribe the letter A on his chest in the Scarlet Letter? Maybe that is subject to interpretation. Um, Does, in fact, you know, Tony Soprano die at the end of The Sopranos? That is clearly subject to interpretation. What is not is the events that go on beforehand. Um, That Tony Soprano walked into the diner alive is not a subject for discussion. The text has it it that he did this is what I mean. This is what I mean by the boundaries. This is what I mean by corralling meaning. This is what I emphasize, and this is the line between what is subject to interpretation and what is not subject to interpretation. And I really don't think Derrida would have a problem with this, and I tend to think that most Iridians who do want to pick fights with any interpretation whatsoever, that are just doing it out of some kind of laziness or just, I don't know, perverse intellectualism, inflammatory, you know, searches for their own fame, and I don't know. It's complicated. Scholarship is a a weird entity. Um, So this is why I've assumed what I've assumed. This is why I've stressed, yes, texts do have, in some sense, meaning. And that meaning does lend itself to certain interpretations and reject other interpretations. Therefore, it is ethically accountable for the interpretations that it allows and for those that it rejects. A text that specifically goes out of its way to say that murder is justifiable or right is a text that we should question. A text that doesn't go out of its way to condemn murder is equally subject to to ethical judgment. All of these things are within the bounds of the artistic generative process. It is what the author allows and makes and informs us with. It is to some degree deliberate, or if it is not deliberate, then it is perhaps reckless and therefore also subject to ethical judgment. What isn't on the table here is. Everything is subjective. Everything is a matter of interpretation. That, to me, is nonsense. There are, in fact, correct answers on the literary section of the SAT, in short. Um, Sorry, folks, if you were trying to say, well, it's really only a matter of opinion. No, no, it was not. It's far more complicated than that. There are opinions, and the opinions are important to our understanding and interpretation. Sure, I will totally grant that. But some things some things are not subject to that opinion. So, with that in mind, let's talk about what Derrida actually has to say here in the actual strange institution discussion and interview. Um, And the first thing that Derrida stresses, and I'm just going to like read this one because it is a kind of super important and crucial to, you know, what Derrida's sort of describing here. Um, It also conveniently is like super early in the actual text, Um, so yeah again like this is probably as good a place to start as as any. So this is on page 35 in the Acts of Literature book that I'm using here. Um, He writes or says, again let's prioritize speech over writing here, um so there was a movement of nostalgia, Derrida says, mournful lyricism to reserve, perhaps encode, in, in short, to render both accessible and inaccessible. And deep down this is still my most naive desire. I don't dream of either a literary work or a philosophical work, but that everything that occurs, happens to me or fails to, should be, as it were, sealed place in reserve, hidden so as to be kept, and this in its very signature, really like a signature, in the very form of a seal, with all the paradoxes that traverse the structure of a seal. The discursive forms we have available to us, the resources in terms of objectivizing, archivation, are so much poorer than what happens or fails to happen, whence the excesses of hypertotalization. This desire for everything plus N, naturally I can analyze it, deconstruct it, criticize it. But it is an experience I love, that I know and recognize. In the moment of narcissistic adolescence and autobiographical dream I'm referring to now, who am I, who is me, what's happening, etc., the first texts I got interested in had that in them. Rousseau, Guide, or Nietzsche. Texts which were neither simply literary nor philosophical, but confessions. The Reveries du Promenade Solitaire. The Confessions. Guide's Journal. La Porte Porte Etroite les nurtures terrestres, le moralistes, and at the same time Nietzsche, the philosopher who speaks in the first person while all the time multiplying proper names, masks, and signatures. As soon as things become a little sedimented, the fact of not giving anything up, not even the things one deprives oneself of, through an interminable internal polylogue, supposing that a polylogue can still be internal, is also not giving up the culture which carries these voices at which point the encyclopedic temptation becomes inseparable from the autobiographical, and philosophical discourse is often only an economic or strategic formalization of this avidity. What does that mean? It's admittedly kind of hard to say. Derrida is emphasizing here that he does admire the autobiographical element in these philosophical writings, again, Guy, Nietzsche, Rousseau especially, Um, but also notice that he is very interested in the accessible and inaccessible, the idea of these the signature as seal, um, the things about writing that is both visible and invisible, that is subject to interpretation and the business of doing the interpretation itself. Um, notice what he stresses there, that uh, business of um, naturally I can analyze it, deconstruct it, criticize it, but it is an experience I love that I know and recognize Clearly, it's the uncovering of meaning, the revealing of meaning, or for that matter, the creation of meaning And what is probably a more Derridean outlook that Derrida is truly in love with. Derrida, for Derrida, literature isn't interesting because of what it says. Literature is interesting because of what, of what it makes us do. It is not the text that appeals to Derrida. It is the reading of the text, the making meaning out of the text, the uncovering what the author says and has to say and could be saying, and turning that into a sort of cogent interpretation. That's the magic of literature for Derrida, or at least so it seems here. Um, All the same, he goes on. This motif of totality circulates here in a singular way between literature and philosophy. In the naive adolescent notebooks or diaries I'm referring to from memory, the obsession with the proteiform motivates the interest for literature to the extent that literature seemed to me, in a confused way, to be the institution which allows one to say everything, in every way the space of literature is not only that of an instituted fiction, but also a fictive institution, which in principle allows one to say everything. To say everything is no doubt to gather by translating all figures into one another, to totalize by formalizing, but to say everything is also to break out of, franchir, prohibitions, to affranchise oneself, or s'affranchir, in every field where law can lay down the law. The law of literature tends, in principle, to defy or lift the law. It therefore allows one to think the essence of the law and the experience of this everything to say. It is an institution which tends to overflow the institution. This is what I really want to focus on, because this seems to be the crux of what Derrida associates with the purpose or the meaning or the underlying reason for literature this business of saying everything. Um, now, the French that he's using here is tout deal, um, which is, you know, properly translated, say everything here, um, but has kind of double connotations, um, which is something that Derrida is especially fond of doing, like difference is kind of the perfect example insofar as it means like to differ, but also to defer, like it's a whole thing. This is what Derrida is doing all of the time. you got to watch those individual words. But what he's stressing here is that on the one hand, we are saying everything in the sense of exhausting. Like, we are saying all of the things that there are to say. That is the business of literature. Like, to say all that can be said. But also, importantly, this also means to say anything you want. Like, there are no limits. You are constantly pushing those boundaries. You are refusing to accept any limitation to what is being said. To say everything is to speak the truth when the truth is unwanted. Um, To say everything is to find a way to speak what has not ever yet been spoken. Um, To say everything is to make all of your voice heard, to make all of your thoughts known, to say all of the things that you have in mind. Um, And notice, too, that he identifies this saying everything with, again, franchir, breaking out of prohibitions, breaking out of the law, and indeed the law of literature itself. The business of literature is to overcome what literature is for Derrida, or at least that is one of the main functions underlying it. And he says as much a little while later, Um, and this is on page 37, um let's make this clear what we call literature not bell letter or poetry implies that license is given to the writer to say everything he wants to or everything he can while remaining shielded safe from all censorship be it religious or political when khomeini called for the murder of Rushdie, it happened that i put my signature to a text without approving all its formulations to the letter which said that literature has a critical function I'm not sure that critical function is the right word. First of all, it would limit, limit literature by fixing a mission for it, a single mission. This would be to finalize literature, to assign it a meaning, a program, and a regulating ideal, whereas it could also have other essential functions, or even have no function, no usefulness outside itself. And by the same token, it can help to think or delimit what meaning, regulating ideal, program, function, and critical might mean. But above all, the reference to a critical function of literature belongs to a language which makes no sense outside what in the West links politics, censorship, and the lifting of censorship to the origin and institution of literature. In the end, the critico-political function of literature in the West remains very ambiguous. The freedom to say everything is a very powerful political weapon, but one which might immediately let itself be neutralized as a fiction. This revolutionary power can become very conservative, the writer can just as well be held to be irresponsible. He can, I'd even say that he must, sometimes demand a certain irresponsibility, at least as regards ideological powers of a Zdanovian type, for example, which try to call him back to extremely determinate responsibilities before socio-political or ideological bodies. This duty of irresponsibility, of refusing to reply for one's thought or writing to constituted powers, is perhaps the highest form of responsibility. To whom To what? That's the whole question of the future, or the event promised by, or to such an experience, which I was just calling the democracy to come. Not the democracy of tomorrow, not a future democracy which will be present tomorrow, but one whose concept is listened to the to, is linked to the to come, avenir, to the experience of a promise engaged that is always an endless promise. So notice, again, Derrida is very careful about how he's understanding literature here. As much as he is emphasizing, yes, it has this critical function, he also refuses to allow the critical function to be the extent of its function or to limit its function. This is the nature of literature, its unlimitedness, its ability to say everything and anything to say it and not be held responsible for itself. This is its job for Derrida. And on some level, as much as I have just, you know, largely spent like a good 20 minutes or 40 minutes or longer trying to justify, okay, there is meaning and therefore literature must be held responsible for what it says, notice that Derrida is at the end of the day agreeing with the fact that literature says stuff, but disagreeing with any limit that might be placed on it. That literature has a fundamental relationship to criticism, to censorship, and to the removal of censorship. That this is part of what literature does, part of what makes literature literature. But he also refuses to acknowledge this as some kind of limitation, that this is what literature must do. Literature can do this. Literature does do this. Literature, in some cases, needs to do this, but nothing can tell literature that it needs to do this. It just does it. And that idea, especially as he emphasizes right at the end here, um, the, you know, this duty of irresponsibility, of refusing to reply for one's thought or writing to constituted powers, is perhaps the highest form of responsibility. That the writer speaks and then does not qualify or clarify, that they write their work and then are silent, this is a huge part of the process for Darius. And it seems pretty clear that literature is, as much as it is the stuff that a writer writes, it is the life of the writer as well. This is something that seems to be as performative as it is performed. Like, one of the things that I tend to like about books and literature specifically is that it is, as Derrida would put it, infinitely iterable. You can copy it, I can like copy the text of Plato's Symposium and email it to a student and they can read it and it is the exact same text that I read. That's kind of amazing, especially because so much of art is deliberately one-of-a-kind, utterly unique, like a specific painting or a specific dramatic performance or the way that a movie is shot and edited. Um, These are in some ways one-of-a-kind things. You cannot experience it the same way twice but literature, while experiencing it and reading it and interpreting it, is incredibly unique and a -a one-of-a-kind experience. It can, in fact, be iterated, duplicated. You can read Romeo and Juliet in the 17th century, and you can read the exact same text that Shakespeare produced, though in a wildly different context, in the 18th, the 19th, the 20th, and the 21st century as well, and Romeo and Juliet is one of the examples that Derrida talks about here. Um, Apparently, he has an entire essay on it, which, again, I didn't read unfortunately, as much as I would love to read a ton more Derrida, the time does not permit, and he is a difficult read at the best of times. Um, So all this to say, we have simultaneously from Derrida a sort of ethical demand and a rejection of ethical demands on a broad scale. Derrida is suggesting, okay, literature does have this sort of political critical obligation. It is required to push literature forward. It is required to push back against the bounds of censorship and of good taste. It is required to say everything. But it is also not required to do anything. It has no requirements. Literature is unbounded. It does whatever it wants to do. Um, And it has to. Like, that's the paradox of this situation. It must say whatever it wants to say. It must be unlimited. Like, yes, if that sounds like a paradox and, you know, a contradiction, that's his point. That's what he's driving home here. Literature has an obligation to not have obligations, in short. And this I find fascinating, like much more than the art for art's sake argument that Tolstoy and and that Maritain are talking about, like much more than this sort of broad strokes. Hey, let literature do whatever it wants to do. Like it's just art sort of attitude where, you know, it's all subjective and none none of it means anything. Notice Derrida is saying it means something. It means a whole lot and therefore it can't be held to mean something by not meaning anything it means something by meaning something it doesn't mean anything this is the paradox that derrida is so interested in the relationship that he is so compelled by but this is also kind of the best argument against a systematic ethics of literature that we've encountered thus far like, as much as we have, in fact, run into a bunch of different writers with a bunch of different standards for what constitutes good or bad literature, as much as we've had writers like Gassette stand up and defend seemingly unethical literature on the grounds that there is, in fact, some kind of underlying ethics, Derrida is saying, on the one hand, there is an ethic of literature, and that ethic is not having an ethic of literature. He is presenting the most cogent argument we've encountered yet to doing away with this entire project he is saying the project is to do away with the project. That's what literature is supposed to do. And this brings up some interesting questions and sort of anticipates some interesting examples. Like, obviously, Derrida is wrestling with a lot of modernists when he's writing about this. He says over and over again, this is Joyce, this is Ceylon, this is Kafka. Like, this is what he is interested in. These are the literary writers he's interested in. Like, at one point, the, the author says, you know, hey, I know you are a huge fan of Beckett. Why haven't you ever written on Beckett? And Derrida is like, because I love Beckett so much that, like, I don't feel adequate to be able to talk about him. Like Beckett is already engaged in deconstructing his own text so deeply that I can't weigh in and do more uh, the way that he would usually deconstruct so many of these other uh, writers. Um, Beckett is kind of the perfect example here. Beckett is, as Derrida says, trying to say everything. Um, He is unbounded by the limits of genre or the limits of good taste. He has plays where the entire play is like the curtain opens and it's just stuff on a stage and then the curtain closes after like half an hour or something. This is what Derrida is interested in in the business of literature. And this is what, you know, sort of emphasizes that boundlessness to what literature has to do. Um, like, I'm not terribly familiar with Beckett. Like, I love Waiting for Godot, but that's kind of a different animal here and not exactly what Derrida is talking about. Um, but the sort of clear example that comes to mind for me is is Nabokov. Um, in the same way that Derrida is arguing, you know, literature's responsibility is to have no responsibility and to be responsible or irresponsible for it, um, Nabokov is always playing against ethics. Like, that's kind of his whole shtick. Um, And sometimes I find that incredibly compelling and powerful, and sometimes I find it incredibly weak and irksome. Um, But nonetheless, like, the sort of key text that comes to mind when we talk about the responsibility to act irresponsibly is Lolita. Like, that's the classic example. It's a book about this older dude who falls in love with a 12-year-old girl, but at every stage of the text, Nabokov is playing against your ethical framework. Is it okay for this guy to be in love with her? Well, it's not his fault that he loves her. He's not making any moves on her. It's, you know, totally platonic in some sense. And then when, in fact, some kind of sexual interaction goes down, it's initiated by the girl. Does that make it okay, Nabokov is asking? Like, the entire book is a game of chicken that Nabokov is playing against your ethical sensibilities. He's waiting for you to throw it down in disgust and refusing to let you do it so easily. This is what I find so compelling about literature in Derrida's sense. This is what I identify with when I see Derrida questioning what literature's purpose actually is. Now, I'm looking at it from the story perspective, because that's the way I understand literature. That's what I prioritize about literature. Derrida clearly isn't. And again, he is interested much more in these more abstract writers and their sort of, like, linguistic engagement with the culture and the tradition and genre altogether. He is more interested in Joyce and Beckett, where I am interested in Faulkner and Nabokov. He is interested in the sort of linguistic games that are being played, the sort of encapsulation of the entire Western canon in like just a couple lines of Ulysses and how he apparently has like an entire lecture series on yes, yes in Ulysses or an entire essay in this exact same uh, anthology on the word shibboleth as it appears in a different writer's work. This is what Derrida is interested in, what these words mean, how they draw these associations and how these authors use them to sort of draw long associations through the entire literary canon. That doesn't interest me as much, though I am fascinated when it is something that I can, in fact, wrap my brain around and when I do think that the author is, you know, giving us enough hints to justify such a deep read of that kind of work. Instead, I'm interested in the Nabokovian storytelling game of chicken, the efforts to sort of question and interrogate and bring up the whole business of western canon and western literature and western ethical dilemmas in the ethical dilemma that we are presented with. Where Derrida looks at the language, the structure, the syntax, I'm looking at the story but at the end of the day, we're both looking at something fairly similar. The challenge that is being offered here. Just as Salman Rushdie is challenging and questioning the Islamic assumptions, and that's why Khomeini effectively puts a hit on him, um, so here in you know Beckett we see him questioning and challenging the conventions of what we expect from a work of literature the way that a sentence can work and just as i see that same challenge in nabokov to my aesthetic or ethical sensibilities to some degree as much as i am disgusted by a lot of nabokov's work like i could not even get through ada just he's, like, Nabokov at that point presumably assumes that you just are going to accept whatever crazy ethical violations he throws into his text without, you know, reference, and that is a bridge too far for me to cross, I'm afraid. Um, as much as I recognize that, like, Nabokov is doing that elsewhere, I continue to respect him even when I find that I can't read him anymore. Um, I recognize that there is some merit to pushing literature to forcing it into shapes that it has never been before to experiment with what literature can be both from the linguistic perspective and the structural perspective as well as the storytelling perspective and the ethical perspective and this You know, as much as, again, I feel like I've got this sort of tension with Derrida, this agreement but disagreement, this respect for his perspective, but also this disagreement with his fairly hard dismissal of a more concrete or stable interpretation or the, you know, meaningfulness of literature as a storytelling device, as something that communicates some ethical material, I do respect Derrida's perspective here and do respect his attitude that literature needs to be unbounded. that to try and prescribe an ethics of literature is wrongheaded in some respects. That literature's job is to push the boundaries of ethics, that its job is to question political systems that are in place, and therefore to question the conventions that we hold sacred or traditional. That's literature's job, it is literary criticism's job, it is the entire literature media complex's job. And I can see that. Now, again, I think that there is a huge difference between what Nabokov is doing in Lolita and what, say, a angry edgelord video game designer is doing in something like Hatred. A game that is literally just, you go around and you shoot people while they're trying to go about their business because, you know, why not destroy the world, I guess. Like, it was a big deal at the time for being what was described as a school shooting simulator. Um, And that does seem morally repugnant to me. It does seem to me like a game that shouldn't exist. But I'm also talking about it, and I'm also arguing that to some degree it needs to exist. Like, it is not ethical that this game was produced and sort of presented to us as something to spend our time with, but it is ethical in the sense that it is pushing these boundaries, asking these questions, and inviting us to think about the greater purpose of art at large. Now, was that going on in the mind of the developer who made Hatred? Probably not, and that's why it's not ethical. But the fact of this thing existing, the fact of this thing possibly being able to exist, opens up some important philosophical questions, and we need to have those conversations. To some degree, I despise this game and wish that it would go away and condemn it, and I still think that it's a Good thing to exist in some respect. It's a conversation that needs to be had. I don't ever want to read Ada all the way through. I see no reason for it. It is repugnant to me. I'm glad that it's out there. I'm glad that Nabokov wrote this thing. I respect Nabokov's role in the literary complex. To say there are some things that cannot be said is dangerous and Derrida knows that it is dangerous. The business of literature sort of creating itself at all times, devising own rules, its own rules for its own interpretation, making up new ways of being read, that's a good thing. And on the one hand, it does lend itself to some fairly destructive works, works that do promote pernicious behavior, And in that sense, those works are pernicious. But at the same time, it opens up new ways of communicating ethical material as well, and therefore is as valuable for that. The difference that I want to stress, the line that I do want to stand on here, and the difference that I see between ethical literature and unethical literature, even in Derrida's perspective here, is care. Carelessness and careless literature is surprisingly abundant. Um, As I said before, like there are lots of people who study Derrida and come away with this sort of haphazard shoot from the hip methodology of just criticizing everything as being equally nonsense. Um, And I find that to be unethical full stop like even within Derrida's explanation that literature should be allowed to say everything, there is a difference between I am saying everything, all that there is to be said, and I am casually saying anything. That's a major difference, possibly something that I can express in English in a way that the French doesn't lend itself to, but I'm sure that Derrida would have a similar perspective as far as that's concerned. There's a lot of crap out there. And when Verrida defending literature, he's not defending crap. He is defending pushing these boundaries in careful, intentional, directed ways, making new ways of understanding and respecting and, and sort of engaging with the world and with the reader, coming up with new rules for literature's interpreting itself. Maybe it's something as structural as like Mark Z. Danielewski's House of Leaves, just inviting the reader to engage with the text in a radically different way in a truly experimental fashion, or maybe it's something ethical like Nabokov or linguistic like Beckett or Joyce, like who knows how it's pushing it forward but all of these artists are doing something deliberately carefully methodically with some kind of spark of creativity ultimately behind it and there's something different between that and some garbage you know rape revenge film that is fundamentally exploitative and only produced in order to make money I don't think Derrida has a word to defend anyone who's doing that in this work, largely because it is disqualified by the term literature in Derrida's uh, perspective, something that I was unwilling to do at the outset of this project, because again, the difference between art and not art is not one that I really want to quibble over, and as much as the difference between literature and not literature is, to me, a more interesting question, it is, at the end of the day, one that will be hopelessly subjective to the various systems and understandings of literature that we've encountered here. If we are to accept Derrida's attitude of literature as the thing that pushes the boundaries, that kind of disqualifies a whole bunch of writers that would otherwise be widely considered literary literature that is in some sense conventional in its structure and style and linguistic apparatus something like say Jane Austen but groundbreaking in terms of its storytelling or its character development or the way that it perceives the world in some sort of meaningful non-challenging way that's what I want to stress like as much as Derrida does absolutely hedge himself here, does say that this is one of the things literature does. It should not be the defining thing that literature does. Literature shouldn't be allowed to do anything. Notice that Derrida is at least a little bit suspicious of the literature that he calls fundamentally conservative. And when he says this, this too is kind of unclear here, but I have to imagine that he's talking about, weirdly enough, stuff like Joyce. Like, as much as Joyce is this, you know, paragon of, of like literature as you know revolutionary and revolutionizing the way that literature works and the way that language works and the way that we sort of incorporate the entire canon it's also worth noting that Joyce is dealing with a kind of fundamentally conservative outlook on literature it is a celebration of the things that have gone before even as it is sort of paving new ground and making something new it is a celebration of conventional values um And Derrida is kind of keenly aware of this, this idea of, you know, the literature as something revolutionary versus literature as something kind of fundamentally conservative. And the literature that is pushing boundaries, that is able to say anything, that can respond to criticism and respond to censorship, etc., will frequently come back around and question laws that are good, um, conventions that are meaningful. Like, this is going to get hopelessly abstract if I don't immediately defer to some sort of concrete example. Um, So let's talk concrete example. Let's talk about how a work that is ostensibly progressive in its message or in its theming may, in fact, be remarkably conservative in some other kind of way. So, like, take Joyce, for example. Take, since I'm less familiar with Ulysses Uh, let's take the portrait of the artist as a young man. It's considerably more digestible at the very least. At the end of the day, this is a work that, like Derrida likes, is pushing boundaries. It is changing the way we understand the function of literature. It is questioning syntax and genre and style. It is pushing forward this new mode of autobiographical writing. All stuff that Derrida loves, all stuff that is perhaps even more perfected in Ulysses, Whatever. At the end of the day, we should stress, though, that the portrait of the artist as a young man is extraordinarily conventional. It is Bildungsroman. It is the young man finding his artistic voice over the course of these five chapters. It is, at the end of the day, somewhat defensive of Christianity and of young men doing literature and of the old fashioned, you know, universities and of typical Irish ethical values. Like, all of this is sort of inherent in the portrait of the artist as a young man. Joyce, as much as he is breaking the limits of what literature can do, is remarkably not doing anything terribly politically revolutionary or progressive in the doing. And I think to some degree this is kind of inherent in literature if only because the way that we understand contemporary progressivism and contemporary conservatism, conservatism does a surprising amount to complicate the relationship between literature. Um, Like I've said elsewhere, and I definitely stand by it, that conservatism's contemporary uh, tendency towards vilifying intellectualism is definitely something that comes, you know, comes against Uh, writers, intellectuals, people who do literature, artists of all stripes. Um, Conservatives and artists are therefore oil and water in some respect. What artists are interested in doing, conservatives don't want them to do, therefore they must be political enemies. But in literature especially, the whole structure of a novel, of a story, usually relies on choice, on a character who does does things, and whose choices are therefore open to evaluation and judgment by the audience. But that's a typically conservative outlook. Progressivism tends, I say tends, it's careful, to understand human behavior in terms of systems and of sort of observable phenomena. They understand the world sociologically, psychologically, but not in terms of free will or in terms of one's motivations and internal desires and the rationality that a person holds in going into trying to pursue those desires. And yet that's the fundamental nature of literary conflict. At the end of the day where much of literature could potentially say something like, look at how poor Gregor Samsa is a victim of the system that he uh, lives in, or how Necht in Kafka's The Trial is ultimately powerless before the forces of which we do not get to understand, something that would in fact communicate a fairly progressive outlook at the end of the day, we are invited to see both Samsa and Nekt as agents in some respect. What is compelling about them is not that they have no power, but that their power is stripped from them. They are theoretically supposed to be agents. They are supposed to be able to decide things for themselves. And that is kind of conservative. That implies that this person should, in, at the end of the day, be left alone to do whatever they want. For Kafka's The Trial to say, look at the apparatus of bureaucracy oppressing and reducing this person to a cog or some sort of absurd or dehumanized entity, is the end of the day to say, hey, government should probably stay out of his business, which is kind of a conservative thing. So it's very complicated, and Derrida is aware of this complication, and Derrida doesn't really give us an ethical framework to understand the sort of revolutionary versus conservative aspirations of literature. He just sort of observes this and moves on. I think he's honestly really insightful to point this out. This is a totally in line with a lot of what I understand about literature's tendency towards the conservative and more than just like the explicitly racist like something like Heart of Darkness but even in so far as like um, in contemporary science fiction circles we have the ostensibly conservative Jim Butcher versus the ostensibly liberal N.K. Jemison and exactly how each one is conservative or liberal, liberal is very interesting to sort of dissect, explore, and understand. It's more complicated than that. And as much as, you know, there is some sort of major political upheaval in scientific or science fiction circles, you know, especially in like the mid-2010s with the sad puppies and all that business, we should definitely note that a lot of speculative fiction is surprisingly conservative and a lot of fiction is surprisingly conservative in this particular Doridian mode. For that matter, all of the writers that we've been talking about in this lecture series, all of these writers who have imposed some sort of code or meaning or ethical framework by which to judge and understand literature, are at the end of the day doing something fundamentally conservative. Tolstoy is definitely a conservative insofar as he's imposing his Christian values on all the writers that he presumes to judge. But at the same time, he criticizes Wagner for his sort of traditional conservatism in its, you know, totally secular, totally Germanic context. Um, Maritain, too, has his conservatism and his concern for the way that, uh, like, these writers' behaviors and outlooks and personalities are affected by the relationship to their art. And at the same time, someone like Gassette, who is standing up for the dehumanization of art in one respect, can be co-opted by conservative forces like the CIA the next moment. Um, even Sartre, who is keen to contextualize all of literature in its own proper context, is emphasizing that the value of literature is kind of self-determined, that it is not something that can be sort of ruled from without. And therefore, we end up in this really complicated space of conservative versus progressive, of the revolutionary versus that which holds to the status quo. Derrida recognizes, as he does in many of these things, a sort of paradoxicality here, that what is conservative is also revolutionary, what is revolutionary is also conservative. What is, you know, political is also apolitical, and what is apolitical is also political. What is saying anything, what is irresponsible by its nature, is also unable to say anything, unable to be responsible, must be irresponsible in order to be responsible. It's definitely a tough thing to wrap our brains around. Um, and I definitely feel myself, like, getting out of my depth here. Um, you know, it's, it is humbling sometimes to encounter a writer who is this much, I don't want to say smarter because that is an oversimplification as well, but who is this engaged in their own project and therefore becomes inscrutable in his own way. Like, it's easy to say that Derrida is just a really smart guy and to assume that he's right and to just sort of carry that away from him, especially when there are so many, like, places in the text we can point to and see something that is truly meaningful or insightful or resonant with our own sort of findings or experience. Um, I do want to sort of stress, though, that it isn't that simple. Like, it is, there are multiple places in the text where I want more from Derrida, where I feel like he is being deliberately obfuscating, and where, rather than coming off as sort of some intentional part of his entire program. It just comes off as obnoxious, Like, that's a hard line to walk here, and it's one that we've bumped into several times over the course of this discussion. The difference between I am honestly trying to do this really complicated and really, you know, creative or really intellectually stimulating project versus I am hand-waving this on the grounds that it doesn't matter or that my philosophical program will cover for whatever, you know, lapse in judgment I may be making here or whatever lapse in meaning you may discover um it is easy to assume that someone is smarter than us because we don't understand that we are what they are saying it's often dangerous to make that assumption though and a lot of the time when we find something that we don't understand the problem is not with us for being too stupid to understand but they're not actually being meaning to be meaning to derive from it um or that meaning being too obfuscated to actually present anything reasonable sensible interpretable um to our, to our perspective. Um, the last thing I want to sort of rest on here, though, is another one of those things that I find really insightful about what Derrida is exploring here, especially with regard to this difference between the, the revolutionary and the conservative outlook. Um, namely, I think it's about two-thirds of the way through the interview, we get into this discussion of phallogocentrism, Um, and how Derrida identifies as one of the things kind of keeping a otherwise revolutionary style and structure of literature in the territory of conservative outlook is this phallogocentrism. And this is kind of a fascinating idea all by itself. Um, Derrida uses the term phallocentrism to refer to a sort of male-informed perspective specifically, Uh, that is literature that is sort of composed from a male attitude, male perspective, male outlook, and therefore kind of implicitly exclusive of a female outlook. Um, And feminist critics at the time are calling various works of literature phallocentric in this sense. Um, And this seems to be a fairly just criticism. Like, again, just as we have arguments in the in 2023 about the sort of domination of the male perspective in literature or in art or in our culture. Um, So Derrida is wrestling with something very similar here. Um, Now, I don't want to get too deep into this because, you know, feminist critique is something that we've kind of avoided talking about as a sort of group-specific ethical framework, but I do want to recognize that if, in fact, Derrida is you know, honest in his understanding, is is in fact trying to promote a literature where anything can be said, where everything can be said. Certainly this includes voices that have otherwise been silenced. Um, This includes feminist perspectives. This includes feminine voices, feminine outlooks, not to mention people of, you know, non-binary gender or, you know, something in the way of like a genderless or a transgendered perspective. Like obviously all of this plugs into what Derrida is saying when he's emphasizing that literature needs to break these boundaries. Um, But what Derrida sort of observes here is that much of what is ostensibly feminist literature is at the end of the day still in some respect phallocentric. Or to put it another way, it is logocentric. It is just as phallocentric is perspective or written from a male perspective or prioritized in a male perspective, um, Derrida often or also points out that much of this literature is logocentric. It pers- it sort of promulgates a logical or objective attitude, an objective perspective of the universe. Um, and for Derrida, the reason why he calls it phallogocentrism is because the two are inextricably linked for him. A scientific, objective, rationalist outlook is predominantly masculine. Um, It is something that has been promoted by masculine writers, especially through the 18th and 19th centuries, and therefore has kind of taken over, co-opted the whole of literature, even to the point that feminist writers ostensibly pursuing a feminist agenda are doing it in phallocentric ways, are writing phallocentric literature to promote that agenda. Um, Because the two are inextricable, because this priority of logical systematizing something which you'll note that derrida is us is very much antagonizing just sort of deconstructing that's probably the primary virtue of his, his deconstructive project here is to sort of explode the assumptions we have about how literature is supposed to work how philosophy is supposed to work how we are supposed to expect systems from our philosophers like Descartes and Malebranche and Hume and Kant are somehow supposed to stand for the entire philosophical tradition, um, Derrida is very much stressing we need something less phallocentric, less logocentric, and for feminist writers to sort of fall into these logocentric patterns is ultimately unfeminist, conservative in surprising ways. The great virtue of Derrida's project is not that it promotes some kind of Intellectual relativism. The reason why, or at least ostensibly, the reason why Derrida is engaging in this kind of philosophical project is because he is deliberately avoiding a philosophical program. We are not looking for blanket statements, blanket truths, these sort of wide generalizations about what the world is or is not. Like Nietzsche, Derrida is trying to come up with a more nuanced perspective, a philosophical system that is inherently self-contradictory, inherently self-deconstructed, that recognizes that any system is necessarily incomplete, self-contradictory, and problematic. This is what I mean by the conservatism of literature, and I suspect this is what Derrida means as well. Any literature that proposes to give us the truth about something, that promote, proposes to deliver some kind of ethical axiom or some system or framework for understanding the world that proposes itself as the capital T truth is suspicious to us and to Derrida, is phallocentric to us and to Derrida. And this comes in a lot of forms. Like, it's complicated. Again, it's inevitably going to, you know, end up with us calling the same people phallocentric and non phallocentric. Like, the sort of go to example I think of is Christopher Nolan. He's like the perfect paradigm of, you know, supermanly director talking about, like, supermanly exploits and all these guys in suits and they gotta get the job done and so on and so forth. And to some degree, like, Christopher Nolan is frequently held up as being this emotionless, heartless, you know, cold director. And on the one hand, yes, that's absolutely true. He is absolutely phallocentric. He is absolutely logocentric. We have all of these, you know, intricate plots and complicated, you know, flywheels moving around throughout his his work, and we are supposed to come at it and sort of puzzle it all out like they are, you know, mathematical problems to be solved. That is super phallocentric. That is super logocentric. And yet, at the same time, the message in almost all of these Christopher Nolan movies is somehow heartfelt. Like, it is about these guys doing a manly task in order to free themselves from having to do this in the future. It is Christian Bale as Batman, Batman Batmanning Gotham City and refusing to get distracted by his emotions and losing the girl he loves in the battle with the Joker so he can ultimately retire from being the Batman and go, you know, live in peace with some woman that he, in fact, cares about. It is Inception and all of the machinations in Leonardo DiCaprio resisting all of his emotional feelings because they're interfering with his efforts to regain his children, regain his family, and be able to submit himself totally to that emotional outlook. Nolan is complicated in that sense. And what I want to stress is that Nolan is, to some degree, able to be interpreted in both of these ways. He is deconstructing himself. He is engaged in a work of art complicated enough for us to have this conversation from a Doridian outlook and come up with both a phallocentric and non- phallocentric, a stable and unstable interpretation. But many people who read Nolan and then create their own works of literature, who also want to make their tough guys doing, you know, tough things Stories don't bother to include that other dimension to them. It is, in fact, complicated, and we should, in fact, recognize Nolan is, in many ways, a conservative director promoting conservative ideals, but he has some saving grace in a liberal outlook or a more feminist outlook or in a more nuanced emotional outlook a less systematic outlook than most people interpret him to have, where others do not loan themselves to that and use Nolan as an excuse to just do more dude movies without any need for explanation or self-criticism or self-analysis. Derrida wants us to interpret these things. Derrida wants us to question these texts, Derrida wants us to engage with these works of literature, not to just dismiss them, not to just interpret them however we want, not to just give up on the whole project. We are meant to. And coming to a single authoritative interpretation, Nolan is a misogynist, Nolan is a feminist, Nolan is phallocentric, Nolan is, you know, a dude movie, is reductive. If Nolan is in fact producing something resembling art, a true work of literature, it will not be subject to just that one interpretation. It will be infinitely iterable, easy to recontextualize, and complicated in its development. Maybe Nolan isn't even the best example here. Maybe the best is the Wachowskis, The Matrix. A movie that inspired all sorts of edgelords to be cool and to not give a crap about the rest of society and to just do whatever they want, but is at the end of the day also very much a transgender coming out narrative about coming to terms with one's own identity and overcoming the societal obstacles that stand in one's way. What is revolutionary can become conservative. What is conservative is meant to be revolutionary. It's. The business of interpretation it is not so simple to say there is no meaning it is not so simple to say that there is one meaning there is it is not so simple as to say that any meaning is relevant but it is worthwhile to say that the business of interpretation is why these works exist why they are supposed to be here the ability to say anything and to thence have anything countersigned back to it That's the job of literature for Derrida, so far as I can understand and tell. Now, again, we might have questions for Derrida. It's definitely not, you know, like me attributing Derrida and trying to, you know, lay this Derridian interpretive matrix on you know popular movies may very well be misinterpretation on my part again Derrida is not interested in storytelling he is probably not as interested in genre convention as I am he is pretty indifferent to a lot of the questions we've been asking over the course of this lecture series and he doesn't seem to be interested in any of these sort of ethical frameworks ethical systems that have been brought up and to some degree, I think he's right to be indifferent to those things. A lot of these ethical systems have been incredibly simplistic. As we go forward, though, we'll find that they grow more robust, as more is sort of under the masthead of what could literature possibly be. Um, at the same time, though, I feel like Derrida is a little bit narrow in his outlook, in understanding literature and as being just a matter of pushing the boundaries of language and semiotics and what can be said, I do think that there is a sort of ethical dimension, especially to the storytelling, which Derrida is just clearly not even interested in, and in the slightest. And while we should recognize the works that Derrida admires for what Derrida admires about them, we should note that, yes, there is room in our ethical literature framework for writers like Nabokov questioning and challenging our ethical assumptions, even as they sort of push the boundaries of what can be said further and further out. Um, We should definitely recognize the potential merit of this task, this act of literature, even as we recognize that there are potentially ethically problematic elements, pernicious effects that can occur to those who interpret haphazardly, or for that matter to those who interpret in a way that is stable. As we go forward, what I'd want to do is not so much adopt or not adopt any of the systems that we are engaging with, least of all Derrida's, but to recognize that each of these systems sort of highlights, spotlights a certain kind of literature, and recognizes and praises that literature for the work that it is doing, for the project that it has itself undertaken, that we might very well be able to at least aspire toward, a system that recognizes the virtue of Mallarmé at the same time as it recognizes the virtue of Tolstoy and Dostoyevsky, a system that recognizes the virtue of Joyce and his ability to push the boundaries of literature while also being able to condemn him for his conservatism and for sort of allowing a kind of pernicious phallocentric perspective on literature to endure and persist. If we come up with a fully robust ethical system, it should be able to do all of these things. It should be able to engage with all of these questions. And what we should flee is an ethical system that is unable to wrestle with these questions, that just narrowly dismisses some works of literature out of hand, like Ayn Rand rejecting any, you know, foggy, you know, meadows as sites for, for literature or ignoring the, you know, potential merit of these, like, psychologically motivated detectives. We should be able to, you know, reject or expand Tolstoy's ethical criticism to include works that Tolstoy himself rejected on grounds that Tolstoy himself suggested, like we've been doing this whole time. In some sense... As much as I have been an opponent of Derrida, I suspect that this entire literary criticism project that I've been undertaking is probably more informed by his outlook than any of the other writers we've talked about so far, because that's what I've been doing. I have been deconstructing each of the ethical systems we've encountered, and attempted to expand them to include more works that other writers have considered ethical, for one reason or another. I am reinterpreting, often against the explicit suggestions of the writers themselves, in order to include things that I suspect that writer could appreciate, given a slightly different outlook, a slightly different framework. I have been building something like a super system here, something that incorporates the values and sort of cautions of each system that has gone before. And yes, it does have to be both. What we are looking for is not a system that just accepts or rejects, but we are looking for a system that recognizes the merits of everything that we encounter, while also recognizing the dangers of everything that we encounter. And so we might very well say, Mallarmé, like Derrida suggests, is pushing forward the boundaries of the French language and what poetry can do. It is inviting a new play of language that will, in fact, enrich and revolutionize the way that we interact with our own words. And we can also say, as Tolstoy did, that much of the stuff that Mallarmé is doing may be senseless, or mean-spirited, or sort of rejecting some notion of brotherhood, we can say, yes, the obscurity that Derrida values is for Tolstoy something elitist that divides us from one another, and recognize that to some degree both are true. Lots of people who read Derrida use Derrida to gatekeep, to reject other people's perspectives and to condemn literature that does not conform to Derrida's deconstructive attitudes. Lots of these thinkers suggest that literature that does not deconstruct itself is overly simplistic. And I think that's short-sighted. But I also think it's short-sighted for Tolstoy to say that any writer that deliberately obfuscates their meaning is pernicious or destructive or elitist is equally simplistic. Sometimes solving the puzzle is an important thing to do. Sometimes having a difficult text in front of us is what makes it worthwhile. It can be more complicated than that. Now, going forward, we're going to hit one of our most conservative and one of our most simplistically ethical writers that we've yet encountered, and also one of my all-time favorites. Um, we're going to read John Gardner's On Moral Fiction. At long last, the sort of centerpiece of the entire project is, is finally the one we're going to tackle. Um, fortunately, uh, this one's a pretty easy one to divide up in two because literally, like, Gardner divides the entire book into two sections. Um, so we'll be reading part one for next time, uh, Premises on Art and Morality. Uh, with principles of art and criticism saved for the week after that. Um, So definitely look out for what John Gardner is going to be talking about, especially in his engagement with the philosophers we've encountered so far, and some of the ones we haven't. Um, He will be using Wittgenstein more than Derrida to understand the sort of like deconstructed project, but nonetheless, we should definitely be attentive to what he has to say there and sort of recognize both the virtues and the vices of what Gardner is describing here. Um, I also just love Gardner's prose. Like, he's just such an excellent writer as writer here in a way that Derrida in this interview definitely isn't. Um, As much as he is attentive to his language, it is not nearly as delightful to read as Gardner's prose. Um, Hopefully, I'll have that lecture up fairly soon. I'm hoping to kind of blow through the remaining few lectures, both the ones on moral fiction and the ones on the company we keep, um, over the next couple weeks because we have summer projects ahead of us and I am definitely behind the schedule on this project. Um, but hopefully, in the next week or so, the first one on Gardner will come up. Whatever it happens, I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the internet or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkozlowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year. Um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out, let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in, or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely please consider contributing to Professor to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. A little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with, or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.